Hello, welcome to Africa Past and Present, episode 84. I'm Ann Beerstaker. And I'm Peter Lim. Peter Allegi is in Vermont at the NUSA conference. And we're very delighted to have Professor Ann Beerstaker, Assistant Director of the Michigan State University African Studies Center and a leading scholar of African literature, join us for the next two podcasts. A very warm welcome to our guest, Professor Pius Adesanmi of Carleton University, Ottawa. A leading Nigerian literary scholar, he has degrees from the universities of Elora and Ibadan and British Columbia. His wonderful book, You Are Not a Country, Africa, won the Penguin Prize for African Writing, and he has edited special issues of Research in African Literatures and English in Africa. His interests span a wide range, from social media and anxieties of power in Nigeria to Yoruba, Francophone and Anglophone literatures, teaching, for example, in Gugiwa Tiongo, the African Literature Classroom. His new book out this year is Africa's Many Lovers, and his regular blog at Sahara Reporters is well worth reading. Welcome, Dr. Adesanmi. Thank you very much, Peter. I'm glad to be here. Maybe we could start by uh, a glance at your prize-winning book, uh, You're Not a Country, Africa. You start that book by asking, what is Africa to me? So maybe I can start by asking what is Africa to you, but not so much as a direct question, but rather about its meaning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I wish I had an answer, a direct answer to that question, but even after a book, you know, uh, written around it, exploring it, you know, trying to make it mean I'm still in that essential quest. So... I guess what I'm going to try to do is maybe describe the atmosphere, the sentiments, you know, that led, uh, uh, so to speak, to that collection of essays. Because it's not um, uh, one single book. It's a collection of essays uh, written in the creative nonfiction genre, you know, exploring, you know, questions of... Um, uh, identities, identities in Africa, you know, what it means to be an African in Africa, and what it means to be an African outside of Africa. And I started confronting that question precisely because uh, Africa became something I had to consciously deal with when I left the continent. Uh, so um, it's getting to 20 years ago now. So you are in the continent and you never are really aware of that transcendental sense of uh, a continental identity. You know, I, I said in the book that the only time I was ever really conscious of having that continental identity uh, was maybe in the 80s, in, in, in the 80s, in the high point of the anti-apartheid struggle, because my country, you know, uh, uh, th th there was a sense in which that struggle was defined, you know, for my generation in Nigeria as a collective struggle, as something that essentially united us with, not just with South Africans, but with all with, with people all over Africa. So that was the only thing Africa really meant. Otherwise, you had your little ethnic identity or religious identity or all kinds of uh, micro-level identities. But then when I went to Europe, 
then Africa as that transcendental concept was thrust upon me. It became something I had to constantly explain, you know, to all the audiences, you know, something would happen in Ethiopia and people would want my opinion, something would happen in Egypt, people would, would want my opinion, something. So that was when, you know, I started asking myself that question. So what does this thing really, really mean? So I gave a lot of situational definitions, you know, the kind of floating definitions of the of the concept and situations in which uh, you have to throw various elements into uh, depending on who is asking, when, when, when they're asking, which context they're asking, you know, so you could be your Africanness could be something about nationalities, it could be something about uh, ethnicity, it could be something about, you know, even di a different way, a different way of assuming identities that originally weren't African. If you are Christian, for instance, if you are Christian, for instance, uh, is there an African way of being a Roman Catholic? Is there an African way of being a Presbyterian? Is there an African way of being a Muslim? You know, so those are issues that, uh, so I'll say it's, a, it's an amalgamation of sentiments that one infuses with political and ideological, you know, connotations depending on the context in which one is working. Thanks. Much of your work has been on Francophone and Anglophone African literature, but you also write on Yoruba literature yeah. on, and on teaching Ngugiwa Thiongo. Mm -hmm. How do you see literatures in African languages fitting in with African literatures in other languages? The, yeah, at some point I, I had to start confronting uh, that, that question of the imperialism of African literatures in European languages. I don't want. I, I I don't want to. I don't want to steal the term of your <laughs> of Adia uh, Ngugi, Europhone literatures and all that. You know, because I I grew up. You know, suffused in in the Yoruba world, the Yoruba imagination and all that. That's my you know primary language and all that. So I I grew up in the world of the folktale in the world of the riddles and all that. And um, so at some point, it's, it started to really get to me that, you know, first I couldn't really write in, in Yoruba. I, I write very good Yoruba, but I can't put all the, uh, the, the markers and the intonations and, 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 and what have you. So that got me interested in uh, what would be, what do I do? How do I teach this language? How do I invest in it? How do I place it alongside all my work, you know, in English and in French? Do I go the Chinoachebe route, you know, some, but nobody can really do it. Nobody can. It's, it's uh, the English he invented to carry his own world. I think it's a unique historical moment. I don't think it can be replicated. You know, so I find other ways around it. A little of Ngugi here, a little of uh, the Ngugi approach here, a little of the Achebe approach here, to find my own ways of expressing myself uh, in English, but uh, it's still completely 
you know, yeah, Yoruba, that is, that is, so I don't write exclusively in Yoruba, mm -hmm. uh, sadly. Sometimes, though, in my teaching, I do introduce texts in, in the Yoruba language and all that, but again, it's got to be translated and mm -hmm. all that, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's something mm -hmm. I'm happy to do alongside my work in, Eng in English, you know, sure. yeah. Somewhat related to, to that, in a way, is the this sort of juxtaposition of the African language discourse with the, with the power and the discourse of the North is the relationship of the African writer to the diasporan writer, if we can put it in those terms. And um, I was struck by the boldness of your challenge to the assumptions that many people appear to carry today, or one might even think of them as infatuations with the uh, with uh, globalization, with the diasporic, and you speak of uh, imposed transnationalism and arrested nationalism in the African literature classroom. And um, so I was wondering here, what has been your learning curve as a Nigerian writer in this regard? Yeah, you know, when I was um, in grad school, uh, back in in the nineties at the University of British Columbia, that's when um, Professor um, Tony Falola, uh, famous Nigerian historian, uh, in uh, where's Prof? He's, he's in Texas, in Texas or Florida? He's in Texas. Yeah, he he started what today has become the easily the most famous list serve. In African studies, I don't know if I'm exaggerating, but a book that a book's been written about it, at least one book, critical book, has been written about that listserv. It's called the USA Africa Dialogue uh, Listserv. There are at least um, three thousand scholars, Africanist scholars, you know, all over the world who subscribe to all kinds of debates. So I was a foundation member of that listserv. Uh, so we were about 20 of us in Canada and the U.S., and then he expanded it. He opened it up to colleagues in the continent. And the early years were very tempestuous in terms of all kinds of challenges, all kinds of arguments. The, the colleagues back in the continent felt some kind of entitlement to authenticity which they felt we had lost by relocating to the West. You know, you made a point, ah, no, you don't really understand, you know, you're not here. And after a while, such disavowals of those of us who had relocated turned outright hostile. You know, we would be accused of abandonment. So every day somebody would put up a post, you know, those who abandoned the continent, those who fled the African classroom. So one day, of course, by now we're talking of a full-fledged server. You know. So one day, I believe it was three or four years ago, there was a return to that argument, and people were. Somebody challenged me. Somebody accused me of having abandoned the African classroom. And I looked at this guy, said, wait a minute. Here's a Nigerian colleague teaching at um, Rhodes University in South Africa. So I started wondering, 
what is an African classroom? When is an African classroom? So that led me to that fundamental question. Who is teaching? Is, is it the physical structure in Africa? Because as at that time, and here, that was my argument. As at that time, I was teaching our... Carlton University has the only standalone institute of African studies in the whole of Canada. There isn't any other one. So it's unique. And, and so we have these huge courses, Introduction to African Studies 1 and 2. I was teaching Introduction to African Studies 1. Almost 200 students on this huge, you know, classes. So I took a census, and I had about 100 of those kids from almost 40, about 45 different African countries assembled in one classroom. So I told the colleague, now tell me, where that is possible in Africa, where you are going to assemble, you know, nearly the African Union in one classroom. So I've got an African classroom right here in Canada. You don't have, you are in Rhodes. You are in Rhodes. So who is qualified? So what, what is? So, uh, so that took me into the parts of the transnational classroom, transnational identities, where even the location of that so-called concept of the Af African classroom, you know, and all that. So that's, that's how that, that, that came about, you know. The, the argument is still, is still on. Because and, I, and you were saying, uh, reading your wonderful yeah, chapter on that, yeah. that at times some of your students were more interested in where the writer was located especially if it corresponded with their own existence, then and actually getting down and reading the text. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so sometimes it became a question of, um, and you would have students who, oh, where is this writer based? You know, and wh why are you teaching this, this writer uh, as, a, as an African writer? You know, he's not part of that structure of, um, I must confess that I've been guilty of that too. It's not just my students or something, you know. So again, it comes back mm -hmm. to the definition of who is an African? What is an African? Who is an African writer? We thought that the, the Ngugis and all of them worked out that in, in Makerere in 1962, but still here with us. If you take a, the, the way I engage Ben Okri, for instance, a writer like Ben Okri, mm -hmm. I have always found that anything after Songs of Enchantment, which is the sequel to uh, The Famished Road, mm -hmm. it, it, it gets very tough for me to teach as African literature. Anything he's written after, you know, about Dangerous Love and Arcadia, all this, what's this guy doing? I, I can't place these texts. So, Sometimes I've referred to him as a former African writer, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they say, what do you mean a former African writer? What do you mean, you know, so how do you place this guy? There's one half of his career which partakes in a certain politics, in certain structures mm -hmm. of feeling, and then he becomes this transcendental floating, and he doesn't help by, I think since he won the Booker Prize, he's not even, he's never even been back in Nigeria 
again, the personal politics of the, of the well, he did the big cool thing, so he went to South Africa. But it's never really been back. It's not part of critical conversations, you know. If you look at a writer like Vasanji, Jim Vasanji, the, 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 the Tanzanian, Pat Kenya, the Indian diaspora, the first half of his career, uh, because I recall we used to, you know, I, I think I've met him once or twice at the ALA. Mm -hmm. So his politics as an African novelist was very pronounced. Then he moved to Canada, and um, the last 10 years, he's hardly, he disappeared from that scene and became a migrant, Indian, Canadian, oh, Canadian novelist of Indian, you know, there's a certain politics mm -hmm. and, and, and even visibility, you know, that goes with that. Uh, and it's more privileged mm -hmm. than being the Kenyan, Tanzanian writer of Indian origin. So, again, how do you engage him as an African writer? So, this, my students do that. Sometimes I do it. <laughs> I read elsewhere where you talked about um, yourself as a public yeah. intellectual, your role as a public intellectual, mm -hmm. and other African writers as yeah. public intellectuals. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, somewhere along the line, I guess um, the public intellectual thing was thrust on me by by Sahara reporters. Peter, ah. Peter was, was, was talking about some of the uh, Sahara reporters uh, has almost 2 million followers on Facebook for instance, just likes on Facebook. It's got, it's the most widely read uh, news outlet uh, uh, in Nigeria at the moment. In the last 10 years, it's the only news medium that the, the Nigerian government really, really, really fears. So if you are associated with Sahara reporters, for starters, you're almost automatically an enemy of... <laughs> of state, you know, it's, uh, at, 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 so they, they don't like us at all. So it's the only Nigerian news medium, you know, it's because of Sahara reporters that the president appointed a special advisor on social media. They've got a budget, millions of dollars, and they recruit their job is to recruit anonymous responders to, <laughs> so the 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 unprintable, <laughs> unprintable reactions. You see that those articles are paid reactions sponsored by mm. the by the Nigerian government and all. So again, I got drawn into into issues of public advocacy for good governance, you know, the anti-corruption stuff mm -hmm. uh, in Nigeria and increasingly across the African continent. And uh, over the years, you know, I've, I've had to write and lecture extensively outside of the academy uh, about that. And I'm only just lucky that I'm in a university in Canada, you know, which allows me to combine, That's you know, great. both. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been very, very, very challenging. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this uh, whole question of the social media yeah. as it relates to uh, African language literatures well, or post-colonial writing, if we're going to mm -hmm. use that term, is very intriguing to me. And uh, recently I was in Brighton at the African Studies Association of the yeah. UK, and one of the keynotes was a very uh, thoughtful 
talk by Walter Bagoya, the famous uh, Tanzanian activist publisher. And uh, one of the themes he raised was uh, the the role and the predicament in material uh, resources of African language publishing. And he himself has done a great deal to promote Swahili language publishing. And I was thinking of the parallel situation Nigeria, which is a giant amongst publishers on the continent. Uh, And and certainly uh, material is published uh, in a wide range of Nigerian languages, but one doesn't always, either in Nigeria or Tanzania or South Africa, for example, see a lot of scholarly tomes that are published in the the vernacular in African languages. And I wondered if your comments on the popularity of Sahara reporters might suggest uh, at least a, uh, a wedge into breaking down the more or less the monopolies mm-hmm. of the European languages when it comes to global publishing. The fact that you can have two million uh, likes. Oh, oh it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's mm. already, you know, it's already done that. It, it's, it's um, in, in fact... But it's in English largely, or is it? Yeah, it's in English largely. Yeah. Sadly, mm. it's, in, it's in English largely. I, I think I still a sense of euphoria because, you know, things really took a hit in the 80s and the 90s. The publishing industry took a hit from the saps, the economic downturn, the corruption, and so things took a hit. And then finally, you got this, suddenly you got this new media, these new ways of exercise. So people have mm-hmm. taken to social media massively, massively, but it's still largely, largely, largely uh, in English, you know. Once we're starting to have, you know, uh, pockets of initiatives here and there, you know, dedicated to African language, you know, literatures, African mm-hmm. language publications. I'm aware, for instance, uh, of... Um, initiatives by the Yoruba Academy, you know, because uh, two or three years ago they started the Yoruba Academy. Uh, Wally Shuyinka is on the board mm. of the Yoruba. Some That's some kind of, maybe it's it's not, if I called it a pastiche of the French Academy, that mm. would be, that would not be a kind way of, um, mm. so it's a French Academy kind of thing, but you know, it's it's less policing. It's more mm-hmm. in terms of exploring ways to break down the monopoly of you know the the mm. yeah, and and That's so one great. of the things the Yoruba Academy is doing, for instance, is encouraging all kinds of clusters of you know ideas in terms of mm-hmm. how do you get things published in the, not not just. In the humanities, scholarly work in, in the Yoruba humanities, even in the sciences, mm. in the sciences, in the hard sciences, in all these, in you know, physics, chemistry, nuclear, this, and how did you start bringing these concepts, you know, to the Yoruba language and publishing and doing the work? You know, and one of the offshoots, uh, one interesting development you'll be interested in, for instance, uh, Peter, is uh, the, 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 the new, uh, I think they'll be doing their third conference this year, Fagunwa Studies. Uh, oh. Dio Fagunwa oh. is, of yes, course, yes. you know. Major figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it grew. It started as a Facebook group. Oh. It started on Facebook. Mm. In fact, one of our professors, uh, Professor Follow Ogundinmu, was at that in conference. In Nibado. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. It started on Facebook. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I think that this uh, podcast, Africa Past yeah. and Present, has made at least a small contribution to this emerging new social media. And in our next uh, episode, uh, we shall be asking uh, the very distinguished uh, Swahili poet, Abdul Latif Abdullah, to read Swahili uh, poem oh, wow. of his. Uh, so that will be at least a small contribution to this discourse. But it strikes me, because we must bring the... Uh, the discussion to uh, unfortunate close because you're due in just a few minutes to give a, a talk to the 8th MSU African Graduate Student Conference, if I've got it right. Yes. The keynote address. The keynote yes. address. Yes. Yes. It sounds very interesting. It does, yes. Uh, but I'm sure, Africa. And, and, and the title <laughs> is? Africa Rising. Uh, for, for whom, whom is Africa whom? Rising? It's a very appropriate term. And, yeah. and I was just reminded that we are actually sitting in a building uh, because earlier you were talking about uh, Toy and Falola's <laughs> initiative in starting this listserv. So we're actually sitting in a building that also houses the, the great rival in that regard, HNET, Humanities Net. Yeah, HNET. <laughs> started in 1995 and I came on board then and we, we set up uh, the mothership, H Africa, which then subdivided and now has an H Swahili, a H Lusophone oh, Africa, wow. H West <laughs> Africa. <laughs> but I'm wondering that in, in some ways, I suppose the listservs have had their day and then, because along have come blogs, Yeah. although mm. one can still blog on um, through the listserv sphere, I suppose, or vice versa. But really, it's been a delight to have you here, Pius. Thank you very much for stopping off on it's your way to deliver this address. And, and uh, thank you for talking to Africa, past and present. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Africa, past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.